We'll hear argument now, number 02428, Daystar Corporation versus 20th Century Fox Film Corporation. Mr. Gerber. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Daystar discovered that an old TV show made by Time, Inc. was in the public domain because Fox uh, neglected to renew the copyright. Daystar adapted the public domain show at considerable expense to make it into a war narrative as opposed to Eisenhower's story. Daystar's product did not refer to Time, Inc. Daystar's product also did not refer to respondents who had their own competitive video of the same TV show. Of the same what? TV show. Uh, Because of the latter, that is the omission of credits to respondents uh, and the finding that Daystar acted willfully in omitting those credits, the lower court awarded $1.6 million dollars Uh, substantially in excess of the $850,000 total gross of Daystar in order to deter it. The lower courts uh, departed from the Lanham Act in a very expansionary way, in our view, in six separate dimensions. Can we go back to your statement? As As I understood it, it wasn't the omission of Fox, but the of your people. In other words, it wasn't the failure to give credit to respondents, but it was petitioners taking credit for it that was what the lower courts thought was wrong. Uh, uh, Taking lower courts in ascending order, on page 53A of the cert petition, the language is, that the court finds that defendants' failure to identify the television series and the book is misleading to the public. And then at the Ninth Circuit level, on page 3A of the petition, the language is that Daystar copied, et cetera, and marketed it without attribution to Fox. Uh, Neither court, Justice Ginsburg, examined uh, Daystar's credits, affirmative credits, for accuracy, for whether they registered with the consumers, for misleadingness or falsity in any way, I would suggest that the record indeed is that it was the omission of credits for their competitors that was, in fact, the basis for the uh, double award. This is a failure to attribute case, then? Yes, it is, Your Honor. Our first and most sweeping point. May I just point out on 3A, it's at the, the quote, you left out the first clause, I think. They they labeled the, the resulting product with a different name and market it without attribution. Oh, yes. That's a reference uh, to changing the title of the work. Uh, The entire phrase, and pardon my truncation of it, on page 3A, is that Daystar copied substantially the entire Crusade in Europe series created by 20th Century Fox, labeled the resulting product with a different name, 
and marketed it without attribution. The name Daystar put on it instead of Crusade in Europe was World War II Campaigns in Europe. Uh, and you will, I believe, see that in neither opinion does either court take a look at the credits on Daystar's uh, product and conclude that they were in any way misleading, nor does the court examine them at all. Uh, our first Counsel, would, would the new Daystar video qualify as a derivative work that would deserve copyright protection on yes. its own? Yes, yes. And the is that issue being litigated? No, it isn't. No, thank you. Uh, our, our most sweeping statutory point uh, is, while not necessary for this opinion, certainly uh, this case certainly would dispose of it, that the current version of uh, the governing statute, Lanham Act 43A1A, does not recognize reverse passing off at all. Uh, the judicial interpretations of the Lanham Act under which this claim was born were under a prior version that was substantially amended in 1988. And while no court has construed the 88 language, uh, we think that the natural and plain meaning of it is that it encompasses only forward passing off. Only what kind of passing off? Forward passing off. What is forward passing off? Uh, forward, uh, it's not football, Your Honor. It is the uh, standard uh, type of trademark or trade dress infringement in which uh, the wrongdoer, let's call it Brand X, uh, utilizes the mark Rolex of uh, usually a well-recognized company and puts that mark on its product. Is it some kind of affirmative misrepresentation? In forward passing off? Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 uh, to, to, to get some kind of liability under the Lanham Act under a reverse passing off theory. Uh, if I may first distinguish yeah. reverse passing off and then come back to Your Honor's question. Yeah. Reverse passing off, in contrast, is where uh, Brand X, for some reason, the commercial motivation is often hard to discern gets a legitimate Rolex, removes the Rolex name, and puts the Brand X name on it. Instead of passing its goods off as Rolex, it's passing Rolex's goods off as its own. Um, I'm sorry, Justice well, O'Connor, I, I — it's, it's, it's related to this. This is a so-called reverse passing off theory that the Ninth Circuit is relying on, right? Yes. And um, — do you say there is no such thing at all, or do you acknowledge that there could be some Lanham Act violation if there were some kind of affirmative misrepresentation? Both. Our, our most ambitious argument is none at all, mm -hmm. and we do have as a less ambitious argument the second. Indeed, the Solicitor General would urge that we, we not take the broader view, right? I uh, don't believe so from the okay. Solicitor General's brief, and let me. Well, we'll find out. Yeah. I, I, our view, which I believe is shared by the Solicitor General, is that under the particular statute in issue in this case, subsection A1A, reverse passing off is a no. Where, where is that? Let's let's. It's look on. At that uh, and talk about it's it. on page two of the cert petition. Okay. And uh, if I may present our most sweeping argument, uh, the language in particular in A1A requires a designation uh, as to the origin, sponsorship, or approval of Daystar's goods 
by another person. So uh, that would naturally cover the situation in which Daystar's goods had the name of another person, such as Fox, on them. But it would not cover the situation in which Daystar's goods had its own name on them because of the by another person uh, language. When Fox's name is on Daystar's goods, and that is the normal passing off, forward passing off, there is a designation that Fox sponsored Daystar's goods or approved it or was the origin of it. Well, well, I mean, that's, that's one reading of that. I mean, you could say, and maybe, maybe it's the more natural reading, that uh, as to the origin by another person means that some other person originated it. But it could mean, as to the origin by another person, if I represent that I originated it, okay, when in fact another person originated it, I would be making a misrepresentation as to the origin by another person because I'm denying that that other person originated it. I'm saying that I did. Wouldn't that be a misrepresentation as to the origin by another person? Uh, I don't think so. The the latter principle that Your Honor stated, I think, would be correct, but I would suggest that uh, it's not illustrated by the example. I think Your Honor is uh, perhaps looking at the as-to language here. And in our view, what that means is that a a representation by Daystar that Fox did sponsor Daystar's work or that Fox did not sponsor Daystar's work yes, would be covered. Yes, either did or did not. Either but did or did neither not. of the, both of those are in contrast to reverse passing off in which the offending party is putting its own name on the work. So that doesn't help. And the, the other argument, the other construction, which is the only competitor on the table here by respondents to Well, excuse me, before you get on it, when, when, when you put your own name on it, aren't you denying that it was originated by somebody else? Uh, You're not stating that it was originated by another person, and that is the statutory You're stating that it was not. You're stating that it was not originated by another person, and that seems to me it could be interpreted as being a misrepresentation as to the origin by another person. Well, I... Your name on it, you're saying, I did it, Nobody else did it. You misrepresent you I, made it. Well, pardon me. I, I would rely on the uh, statutory distinction. It's one thing to make a representation that the wrongdoer is the originator, with whatever implications that may have, and another to make a misrepresentation which which seems down the middle of the alley of the statutory language that another person, Fox originated the work. Well, and is this affected at all by the fact that the copyright had expired? This was in the public domain. Well, is there some, uh, how does that affect it? Can you put your own name on something that's now in the public domain? Uh, that, uh, separate and apart from the most sweeping argument uh, we have, uh, really uh, goes to a number of other attacks on what the uh, lower court did. The short answer is you can. Uh, Mr. Gerber, I'd likely. like to go, be, go back to what the lower court did, because I don't think that you were accurate when you said, in the view of the lower court, this was a non-attribution case. I'm looking at page 
53, and the Court indeed does start out by saying that defendants failed to identify the series. But then there's a semicolon, and it goes on to say — 53A of the petition. I'm questioning Mr. Gerber's characterization of this case as simply a non-attribution one, because after the semicolon, it says why that was a problem. It's — it gives the false impression that the series contains only the work of those listed in the credits. So that was the problem that was central for the district court, not simply a non-attribution, but an incorrect attribution. And I don't see how you can ignore that clear statement by the district court. Well, in the district court, if one is talking about the wheat and the chaff, on page 31A, in which the district court introduces its lengthy discussion, the statement is that the lawsuit is based on defendants' distribution of a video series, which plaintiff's claim is an infringement of the protected material found in the book and is an appropriation of the television series Crusade in Europe without proper credit. Now, the reason I think that is the correct interpretation of what the district court was doing — Without proper credit could mean improper credit. But when the court is developing that point in full, it says the two things. It was the failure to identify why was that a violation of the Lanham Act in the court's view, because it gave the false impression that only those listed. Yeah, I would suggest that without proper credit means what it says. It doesn't mean improper credit. It means that the proper credits were not affixed. And then, of course, when you look at the Ninth Circuit — It was an improper attribution case, not simply a non-attribution case. I'm simply questioning your original characterization, which I do not think pays attention to what the district court, in fact, said. I understand, Justice Ginsburg. But, again, I would urge that without proper credit, that phrase is not a statement that there were improper credits. It's a statement that the proper credits were absent. And I would add that whatever ambiguity may lurk in the district court's findings, it's quite clear that at the Ninth Circuit level, which, of course, is what this Court is reviewing, the case is a non-attribution case. Ninth Circuit had a rather quick, unpublished opinion. Correct. In this case. We agree with that. It didn't tell us very much. If I may turn just for a moment to some of the — to question two, the remedies issue. Here, we would urge that the statutory language and legislative intent, to the extent it is pertinent, coalesce. Subject to the principles of equity means subject to the principles of equity. This Court, while the Lanham Act was being debated, applied equitable principles in an intellectual property case to define the circumstances under which profits may be disgorged. That's the Sheldon case. And it said equitable disgorgement of profits is permissible only for restitutionary purposes, only to restore to plaintiff something that he has lost. That, by definition, precludes a purely deterrent award, 
which is not restitutionary in the slightest. If the Court has no further questions, I would like to reserve my remaining time. Very well, Mr. Gerber. Mr. Garr, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The petitioner in this case did not make any false designation as to the origin of its good, a videotaped series on World War II, when it put its own label on that good. Petitioner manufactured the good at issue in this case, the video series. It produced it and it distributed it to consumers. Under this Court's decisions interpreting the Lanham Act and under the Lanham Act itself, petitioner is therefore the origin of the good at issue in this case and is the source of that good in the way that this Court has used that term. In 1990, Congress addressed the question of artistic attribution, and it addressed it in the, con- in the context of the copyright laws. And it- Excuse me. Be- be- before you go on, uh, suppose, suppose they hadn't edited the, uh, the prior crusade in Europe thing at all. They had not done anything to it. Didn't uh, have a, a new introduction, didn't have the little snippets of edition that they had. However, they did indeed make the copies, and they, they made the, the plastic cassette in which it was inserted and so forth. Uh, would you take the position that, uh, that they were the origin of that, uh, of, of that uh, product and therefore could represent that it was their product? We would take that position, Justice Scalia, and I think that would, that would be consistent with the way this Court has consistently interpreted the term origin. If you look at the Walmart case, the Qualitex case, and going back to the concurring decisions in the two pesos, which is to refer to the source of production or manufacture. Production not in the Hollywood sense of production. Absolutely. Production and in the sense of I made this, uh, this physical article. That's correct, Justice Scalia. And that's, of course, we encourage the intellectual property laws and this Court's decisions encourage firms to go out and copy goods that come into the public domain. And the Court's recent traffic case — And that's what this was in the public domain, was it not? That's correct. The television — Do you think that this uh, Daystar product could have uh, been copyrightable as a derivative work on its own? We do think that it could be copyrightable as a derivative work to the extent that it's not subject to copyright protection. Of course, the, the original television series was subject to a copyright, but that copyright expired in 1977 because respondent 20th Century Fox failed to renew it. And, of course, if, if the respondent had renewed it, uh, one suspects that we wouldn't be here today arguing about the, an expansive interpretation of the Lanham Act. Now, Congress has addressed the question of artistic rights of attribution. It did so in the context of the copyright laws, and it did so very carefully. It limited — it recognized specific rights of artistic attribution in 1990, but it limited those rights to a small class of visual arts, made them personal to the author of those works, and limited the duration of the life — limited the duration of the, the rights to the life of the author. In this case, the Ninth Circuit recognized a general right of at- artistic attribution — that is not limited in time, that applies to a work, an audiovisual work, that Congress specifically exempted from the scope of its 1990 legislation, and that is not personal to the author of the work, which in this case was Time Inc., who initially produced the television series. Is there, is there no — I understand you're saying — I say I produced this, 
all it means is I produced this physical object. But suppose, in addition, the person says, I produced this this physical object, and moreover, I, I, I produced the show that is on this physical object. That is, I'm using produced in the Hollywood sense now. Is there, is there no, when in fact I didn't, I just did a little bit and most of it was done by Fox. Well, is there no remedy for that? Because that's what they say occurred here. They, they, they wouldn't mind you just saying, you know, uh, I, I am the maker of this cassette or of this disc. They wouldn't mind that. But, but what happened was that on the disc it said, I am the artistic producer of this thing. That's what they're complaining about now. Is there no remedy for that when they weren't? Two responses. First, when they labeled a good that they manufactured and produced as their own good, they didn't make any false designation of origin within the meaning of Section A1A of the Lanham Act. Now, as we've discussed in our brief, Section A1B of the Lanham Act, which the respondents in this case have never invoked and the courts below didn't address, isn't limited to false designations of origin. It applies to false designations that misrepresent the nature, qualities, or characteristics of a good. So the the second type of description that Your Honor characterized conceivably could fall within the scope of Section A1B. But, of course, Section A1B was not raised in this case, and it's also limited to the context of commercial advertising and production. The purpose of the Lanham Act and the trademark laws, and this is made clear in the definition of trademark that appears at 15 U.S.C. 1127, is to ensure that Firms identify and distinguish their goods in order to prevent consumer confusion as to the source of Isn't any general federal anti-lying law well, that you can get these people hurt? No, there's, a, there's another source, Justice Scalia, and we've mentioned in Note 7 of our brief, the Federal Trade Commission Act gives the tra- Federal Trade Commission authority to go out and address deceptive <coughs> or unfair trade practices. But that statute, too, isn't limited to false designations of origin. Origin doesn't even appear in that in that statute. Origin has — If I just read the the label on the videotape, and it says uh, campaigns in Europe, and it's identical to crusades in Europe, Uh, and I want to sue under B because I just bought something that duplicated what I bought last week. Uh, Does the label uh, constitute commercial advertising or promotion? We haven't addressed that issue, uh, Justice Kennedy, and and there is some um, varying case law on that. I think most courts would probably answer that question in the negative. Most courts have interpreted Section A1B to refer to advertising in the print ad. Then B doesn't help, and if if, if if I put, then then the the hope you hold out for us under B isn't isn't very promising, unless you're talking about sitting and reading what comes on in, in of course advertising is often the credits which no one ever advertising reads. is often associated with the sale of products but more importantly a1a is addressed it, it, it's it's intended to ensure that consumers can look at a product and identify the source of that product product so that if they do have complaints about the product they can go to that person and notably in this case no consumer who has ever purchased petitioner's videos has registered any complaint along the lines that your honor is suggesting well, I'm, and if, I'm supposing a case and I thought you indicated that B might cover it but it has to be some advertising uh, other than what's on the, on the label under section A1B that's correct but I think that the important distinction between A1B and A1A in this case with respect to origin is it is it 
A1A is limited to false designations of origin or as to sponsorship or approval, and and the latter two elements, sponsorship or approval, aren't addressed in in this case. A1B is much broader and and would include the types of other representations that Your Honor is concerned about. And, of course, all this, we think, goes back to the notion that respondents seek artistic attribution for their product. May may I, uh, on that score, may I go back to your answer to Justice O'Connor's question about the the possibility of copyright as derivative work? Would that copyright cover not only the new material but all the original material that they incorporated in? I I believe that the copyright would cover the new material. And, of course, So so that if they they did that, if if they got that copyright, they then couldn't turn around. Uh, and sue for copyright infringement uh, when the original crusade in Europe uh, was was marketed by the others. I, I think that's right. We haven't okay. addressed that question okay. in detail. But you're, in any case, your, your understanding is that it's only the new material that would be subject to copyright. Under the driver work, I, yeah. I believe that that's true. But we think it's, it's also important that when consumer buys the product in this case, a video, a, a package of videotapes on World War II, the consumer doesn't purchase the intellectual property on those tapes. And that's the purpose of the FBI warning that appears at the very beginning of the tape. The, the, the consumer purchases a videotape series package and a copy of that, which it can view at home. Nothing in the Lanham Act, which is not an artistic credit statute, required the petitioner in this case to provide any attribution to the true creator of the television series that petitioner initially copied. Or prevented him from, prevented them from making a misattribution. You have to add that. Well, we, we think that that's true. Uh, with respect to authorship, because we don't think authorship or, or the concept of invention is covered by A1A. And, of course, the notion of attribution that respondents would urge this Court to adopt this case would have to apply to other types of goods, like the sign stand in the traffic's case. No one in traffic suggested that petitioner could go out and reverse engineer and copy this sign stand, which had entered the public domain, but that when it did that, it had to go and give credit to Marketing Displays, the firm that initially had the, copy, the patent on that, or to the original inventor himself, Robert Sarkeesian. Now, Garth, just, before you finish, there was a reference in your brief that I didn't follow. It cropped up in another brief, too, and it, had, it was a reference to the Berne Convention. Could you, what is the relevance of that international treaty to this, to this case? May I answer that question? Uh, it is relevant in that it's an international convention that, copyright, that covers copyrights, but if we explain in our brief, it does, we don't think that it affects the analysis in this case um, because, it, it, as, as the Berne Convention Implementation Act states, it doesn't expand or reduce existing rights under, under domestic law. Thank you, Mr. Garr. Thank you. Ms. Sandali, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is not a case about copying. It's a case about deception. No one is disputing that someone has the right to copy works when they're no longer protected by copyright or patent. But as this Court has long recognized in decisions like Bonita Boats, Sears, and Comco, that doesn't give you the right to create consumer confusion and how you label such works. 
This, I should correct, is not a case about a work that's actually in the public domain. Since the Ninth Circuit decision, as we've explained in our brief, we retried the work for hire issue. The district court once again affirmed her previous summary judgment decision that the work was work for hire. So the underlying book by General Eisenhower is, in fact, still protected by copyright, though they intend to appeal. In any case, here, Daystar violated the Lanham Act by advertising, packaging, titling, and crediting Kret's crusade in Europe in a manner intentionally designed to give the false impression that it was an original product originally created by it. And Daystar knew, moreover, that consumer confusion was likely. Norman Anderson, Daystar's president, admitted that a consumer would not be happy to have purchased a copy of uh, campaigns if he or she already had a copy of Crusade. But the, the issue is whether the Lanham Act uh, uh, creates a cause of action with respect to that particular unhappiness. What do you respond to the contention that the word origin in this provision simply means who manufactured it, not whose, whose idea it was? And to put it in, it applies in a patent context as, as well. You know these, these, these vice grips that uh, you, you can have appliers that will hold on automatically uh, until you release it? Suppose the patent has, has expired on that, and I produce um, an identical copy of, of the vice grip, and I sell it, and I say, you know, manuf- produ- manufactured by Scalia. Do I have to say, oh, but it's not my idea? Absolutely. I want you to know that, you know, Mr. Weisgrip is the guy that, uh, that originally did. I don't have to say that, do I? Absolutely not, Your Honor, and we're not urging that. And what if I say, and moreover, it was my original idea? Would there be a cause of action under the land? Yes, that there would, would be. If, if you pulled yourself oh, out falsely. <laughs> If you hold yourself out falsely as the inventor of a product when you are not, that creates liability as the What does that have to do with my all right, I don't see it. Why is it I mean, why is it Lanham Act rather than Copyright Act? Well the the Copyright Act just deals with copying, people making copies of something and selling it. The Lanham Act deals with deception, and that's what, that's what this is. It's not just that they made the copies, but by crediting themselves as the creator of campaigns in Europe, they were able to jumpstart their video business and be able to then get all the goodwill associated with that product and say, look, we can make these Okay, videos. no, I, I realize that, but you say, well, the Copyright Act is concerned with copying. It's, it's concerned basically with, with copying being a certain intellectual content. That's, what's, well, that's what they're trying to protect. That's right. The Lanham Act, I thought, was not trying to protect intellectual content. It doesn't have to. There's another statute there. The Lanham Act, I thought, uh, wanted to make it clear, wanted uh, producers to make it clear, who is at fault if somebody buys the product and doesn't like it? There's no deception here about that, is there? They know they're going to go to Dastar and raise the devil if, if they don't like it. Isn't that the point of the Lanham Act? No, Your Honor. For one thing, if they don't like the content and they go to Daystar, they'll have no one to talk to. Uh, With regard to the purposes of the Lanham Act, as this Court has made clear in Inwood and in Qualitex. But they they will have somebody to talk to. Daystar will say, I'm assuming they're honest people, and they will say, well, yeah, we did that. Um, You you don't like the fact that we copied uh, this other stuff and said it was ours? We're the ones to blame. But the purposes of the Lanham Act, as this Court has made clear on numerous occasions, most very recently in Qualitex, is to let consumers 
be able to know when they're getting a product, if they want to get, if they like it, if they want to get other things from that product, from that supplier, they can. Daystar knows who to plagiarize. When, when I see the Daystar name, I'm getting good stuff. Well, you, well, Your Honor, you just don't know whether the next person they plagiarize is going to be as good as 20th Century Fox. That's why I'm relying, yeah, but I'm relying on them. They, 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 they knew who to copy the first time. It seems to me that is just as much a, a guarantee that they'll know who to copy the next time as if they'd made it themselves. Well, the other problem with it, beyond the fact that they are deprived, because you have no idea whether the next time they copy will be as good as the first time, you're also depriving the consumer of the ability to end up buying two of the same product, a very real product. That's right, and, that they and, they can, they can go to, and they can go to Daystar and raise the devil. They said, you didn't tell us that you copied that other thing. We'll never buy Daystar again. But they know exactly who to blame. They don't know who to blame because if someone buys campaigns and crusade, they will not know who cheated them. They will not be able to tell. The products are lodged with the court. The court can look at them. If you bought them both, if I bought my dad one for Christmas and another one for him for his birthday, he's not going to be happy to find he has two hours of the same, two copies of the same seven-hour videotape. And in page 205 of the record, it's clear that there's seven hours of content in there. But the same point, why can't he sue or you sue Daystar? He wouldn't know who to sue. And maybe he also would think... You sue the person you bought it from. But it could have been Fox. He wouldn't have known who was the one telling the truth. Moreover, he also wouldn't know. Maybe he would think, well, you know he can, what? Well, he can sue them both and find out. I don't know if that's, that, 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 that's the, the, the best way the law should deal with it. Going back to Justice Scalia's question, though, about origin, there's nothing in the uh, Lanham Act to suggest that Congress wanted to limit the word origin to just the manufacture of a product. Now, in this Justice Stevens' concurring opinion in two pesos, he specifically noted that the term origin has expanded over time from its original roots as denoting geographic origin, a concept that's now in A1B of the Lanham Act, to encompass origin of both source and manufacturer. So just by the, this Court's own opinion, source is something different from manufacturer. What is source? Going back to Justice O'Connor writing for the Court in Feist and talking about origin, originator, author, the common reading of yes, what... Yes, but there is, a, there is a sort of a, a ambiguity or at least a debate over what the source is. I take your traffic candy, the, the sign that stood up well in the wind. What obligation did the, did the second manufacturer have to say the idea was somebody else's? Absolutely none. They Why not? Why isn't it the same case? It's not at all the same case, but when you're, because when you're simply selling a physical product, if, the, if all Daystar did here was sell Crusade in Europe as Crusade in Europe, it would be a totally different case. But what they did here is they held themselves out as the maker of it, as well, the creator They didn't hold themselves it. out as the people who took all the pictures. A lot of them were secondhand pictures, you know, taken by news photographers and all sorts of people. They held themselves out by putting their names and only their names on the credits, by, by having a special thanks to the National Archives right before their names when they admitted they had no contact, contact, with, contact with the National Archives with regard to creating these products, by putting only a 95 copyright notice on it, by, 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 create, by listing only themselves as producers. The only conclusion one I don't, I don't readily see the difference between that and the sign situation. The, the sign manufacturer wants everybody to think what a brilliant builder of signs is. He has a lot of other models in his catalog. 
wrong. But the sign manufacturer, when we deal with products, we don't normally think when you have a product that someone is saying, I invented this. We're accustomed to lots of people selling similar products. The commercial context is very different. Is what you're, is what you're saying that when you buy the books or the videotape, you're buying it because you think it's going to be different and you're disappointed when you find out that it isn't? With, with traffic, you know, if it's a sign that stands in the wind. Well, you're but right, that you're goes right. again to what I, Justice Souter's initial line of questioning, I, and I really think it's the, the major problem in the case for me, um, no, is what you do is you sue the seller, Dystar, uh, for misrepresenting. But and, and that Fox is not the injured person. I maybe can help you on and that, that's Your critical Honor, because in the, case the, the Lanham Act does not provide a cause of action for consumers. So if you, if you posit the idea that consumers need to consume Daystar if they're disgruntled, they cannot do that under the Lanham Act. The Lanham Act provides, it's been well recognized that there's only, there's no cause of action for consumers. The only people then who There's no cause of action if a commercial advertising misrepresents the nature of the of the goods? No, Your Honor. There's been, if you can look in McCarthy, there's a well-established case law. No, but who has the cause of action? The cause of action is the other company. The, that's right. Oh, the people who can sue are people such as, as respondents right. who, are, who, are, who have had some other company come along, steal no, the deal of this I, product. I, really and no, I, I, I this just totally ignores the fact that it was in the public domain. I mean, of course they had a right to copy it. Why didn't Fox renew the copyright if they wanted to do that? Your Honor, have all this trouble. There's no issue if they simply copied it as Crusading Europe and sold it as Crusading Europe. There, we would not be here on a Lanham Act cause of action. Our problem is, as we said in our complaint, it, it, at paragraphs 12 uh, uh, and 22, I believe, what they did was that they held themselves out as the producers. And oh, does someone have a right to go in and take part of a previous work that's now in the public domain and add original work to it and reissue it under their name and get a derivative copyright for at least the new part. Now, is that authorized? Yes, they absolutely right. can do that. But when you have a case like this, which as two courts have found, it was a bodily appropriation. The only things they changed were to the district court and the court of appeals in a, right. uh, a jurisdiction that has taken a rather extreme view of what the Lanham Act protects. That's what we're reviewing. I mean, there, it's, it's a means, it seems to me, of expanding copyright protection. Your Honor, I, I really don't think so, because, again, they could have copied. The problem isn't with the copying. The problem was the taking credit for themselves. Uh, going back to the misattribution point on page 21 of the cert petition in Justice Judge Cooper's description of her own summary judgment decision. She says, by bodily appropriating the Crusade series and falsely identifying themselves as producers of campaigns. How does the phrase bodily appropriation fit into the Lanham Act? I think it's designed as a, as a, as a tool in reverse passing off cases where you're dealing with products to help assess how similar those, those products are. To go back to Certainly there's point. nothing like that in the Lanham Act itself. 
No, but, it, but it's, what it's trying to do is to find a way of getting at the reverse passing off problem. The Lanham Act doesn't provide a particular way of establishing confusion, deception, no, or mistake. What the Ninth Circuit theory seems to me to do is to equate the likelihood of consumer confusion with bodily appropriation. Now, in, in the case of the traffic sign, once there was no more protection under law for that, some other manufacturer can come in and sell it and produce it, and that's a bodily appropriation, all right, but it wasn't uh, treated as producing consumer confusion. Why should this? I don't think it, there would be liability for traffics under the Ninth Circuit test because it's not just bodily appropriation, but it's misattribution. And as I say, when you're just simply saying, I manufactured the product, you're not misattributing it. If Daystar said, Daystar, I manufactured and distributed this product, that would not be reverse passing off. They are allowed to credit themselves for what they did. They just cannot credit themselves for what they didn't do. What, Ms. Chandali, how far back do you go? I mean, my problem with your interpretation of the word origin, it seems to me a very good cutoff point means origin means who's selling it, who who produced the physical thing. Now, you you, you don't want to limit it to that. You want to say, it also includes what the physical thing contains, if it's, uh, if it's an intellectual uh, matter. But why do you cut it off at the last copyright owner? I mean, suppose the, the cassette contained um, Carmen Jones, okay? Why, why would, would, would I have to identify not only whoever was the author of the derivative work, Carmen Jones, Harry Belafonte, I don't know who did it, uh, would I also have to identify Bizet as, as the, you know, the, the author of the original idea, plus the unknown Frenchman who wrote the novel from whom Bizet got the, got the idea? Absolutely not, Your Honor. There, why not? Why, why, why do you arbitrarily say, you know, you go back to the last copyright owner? It has nothing to do with who is the copyright owner or not. It's distinct from copyright. The issue is, and the only issue a court needs to decide in these cases, is does the person claiming a credit for themselves, right. was that accurate? So if okay. the person — Yeah, yes. What difference would it make if the person claiming the credit, instead of claiming for himself, said, developed by an unknown genius? Then when he knows it was developed by you, that would be equally misleading. And would it be covered? Um, I'm, I'm sorry. If, if the, the representation is not, I developed it. Right. I know you developed it. What I, what I represent is it was developed by a brilliant third party whose name I'm not going to disclose. Would that be also actionable? I don't think so, Your Why Honor. Why not? It's I, the same, mis- same uh, impact on you. It fails to give you credit for what you did. But again, the issue isn't giving us credit. The, cred- the, the, the danger here is them taking the credit. Well, but what, does it matter whether they take the credit for themselves or for, or for uh, Thomas Edison or some third party that everybody assumes really is the genius here? It's false in both cases. You're, you're right. If, if I understand what you're saying is if someone mislabels a product in a false way as to what the origin of that product is, that is — that, I believe, is actionable under the Lanham Act. Even if you didn't have a copyright, and that would apply even if you had no copyright on the product. Copyright really has yes. nothing to do with, with this case. There's separate causes of action. Does it have to be a deliberate or could be a mistake? Suppose the person thought a third party did it and he was wrong. He said this was really written by William Shakespeare and it was written by Joe Smith. 
Would that also be actionable? If it was, if it was a, if it was a mistake, it's still, it may be false or misleading, but there wouldn't be any. Uh, the damage is likely to be very different if there was a Why mistake. Why wouldn't the damage be exactly the same? You didn't get credit for something you developed. But again, it's not the, to go back, Your Honor, it's not the giving us credit. It's simply the injury lies from someone taking the credit for themselves for a company such as Daystar with no experience in the video business to suddenly in three months at the investment of $4,000 be able to produce a seven-hour videotape that it can represent to the world and use to jumpstart its video business and sell 150 other box sets in competition with our clients. Well, that certainly may be unfair competition, but I'm not sure that it has anything to do with confusion. Let me, may I ask you a different kind of question? I thought in answer to a question I put to you earlier that you might be suggesting, you did not come out and say it, but I thought you might be suggesting that there would be a different kind of analysis depending on whether we were talking about an object like the sign on the two springs, on the one hand, and an object with intellectual content on the other. You said to me, I I said, you know, if if they don't like what they get, they will know that Daystar is to blame. And your answer was, no, they won't, uh, because they won't know whether Daystar copied Fox or Fox copied Daystar. And therefore, Fox will suffer because there is confusion and Fox will get hurt. And, and that seems to be a distinction based on the fact that you're buying intellectual content as opposed simply to buying a sign that either stays up or doesn't stay up. Is, is that an argument that, 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 that you would make? Well, yes, in part in the sense that certainly when someone buys a creative work, Knowing the author is important to the person. If you like a Tom Clancy novel, you'll buy another Tom Clancy novel. No, but, I mean, that's important to me. But I thought your argument was uh, that the original producer uh, is, is in fact, going to be hurt by the confusion because maybe the original producer will be blamed for the fact that there are these two identical intellectual products on the market. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, what happens in the case, uh, what would happen in the case in, in which uh, we, we start out with, with Fox uh, marketing its, its series, and they call it Crusade in Europe, just, uh, just as they, they labeled the original TV program. Uh, and Daystar comes out with a, with a series uh, which is identical to it. Uh, uh, again, copyright has expired. Daystar comes out with a series that is identical to it and calls it War. Uh, and simply says at the bottom of, of the cassette, cassette manufactured by Daystar, is there a Lanham Act violation then? There is no claim that Daystar produced anything. Is there a Lanham Act violation then? There would not be a false designation of origin claim under A1A. It's because Daystar is not representing itself to be the the creator, it's accurately just simply... But the consumer would be just as mad, and I suppose, and there would be a danger even in the second case of Fox being blamed for the identity of these two products. But there might, there would be, however, I believe in that scenario, a claim under A1B of the Lanham Act for falsely describing the nature of the product. As, the, as this case is cited in our... No, but in my second example, they didn't falsely describe it. They just said cassette produced by Daystar. Only that was true from the purposes of origin, and I'm saying there wouldn't be an yeah. origin claim. 
But with regard to the title, for the reasons discussed in the Second Circuit cases, the New American Library cases, when someone comes up with a creative work and puts a title on it, inherent in that use is the idea that that — Any change in title is therefore a deception. That's what those cases say. It's a deception in the sense that it's an implicit denial of the identity. That's right. And so, therefore, I think that would be a separate issue. And that's why, as consumers, we all know when we look at a book and we check to see, you know, if it was the same Agatha Christie book published under a different title. And that's an example where disclaimers are not very difficult for people to deal with in in reality and something that consumers all can expect. Ms. Sandali, could you describe to us precisely what it is that Daystar could represent. It has this cassette that it's selling. And you said they they can't say produced by Daystar and not say Fox. What exactly could they say? You don't question that they could copy word for word what's in the public domain. In packaging it, what could they say? Probably the easiest thing for them to have done would have been to have copied it down to the last iota of the frame and simply called it and said, manufactured and distributed by Daystar. That would not have been a problem under the Lanham Act or the, or the Copyright Act, if, but for the fact that it, the work is not truly in the public domain. If they had want, they could have also said, new credits created by Daystar. They could have accurately credited themselves for that. They could have chosen not to credit anybody. There's no requirement of credit. Or they could have given credit to everyone. They could have listed the original creditors and they could have creators and they could have added their name on it. All of these things they could have done, which would have protected the consumer. The consumer would have known what he or she was getting and also not usurp for themselves unjustly in an unjust enrichment way the goodwill to which they do not deserve. This is not had time to address the damages aspect of it. And if you're right that what went wrong here was not the copying, they were free to copy. Was Absolutely right. And, and the only thing that was wrong was that they, the attribution of creator. The misattribution, yes, Your Honor. Why should they get the profits of uh, Daystar? When, when all they did wrong, I mean, did, did copying the pages, copying the cassettes was fine. Seems to me to, to have that large disgorgement of damages is a misfit. For several reasons, Your Honor. First, uh, the, what, what they, the disgorgement is the normal a remedy in cases like this because it's very difficult to establish actual damages of, of any type. The statute is premised and works this way. You, can, you establish your entitlement to profits. In other words, the plaintiff just simply, once they show liability, needs to show that they're, that they're, what the sales were. And then the burden is on Daystar to come forward and establish what, what deductions should be from that. Deductions have included the ability to argue apportionment, that only some of the sales should be attributed to the infringement, for yes, example. Yes, but can I interrupt with, with the question? You got double profits in this case, didn't you? Yes, we did. The court Wasn't had, the theory of that to deter new violations, which I find strange when there's an injunction against new violations? No, but, but, but the issue here is the uh, — 
they ha this was undisputed. This was the first of 150 videos. And as Judge Posner in the Louis Vuitton opinion discussed in our brief, discusses the enhanced damages and, in fact, damages of any type are particularly proper in cases such as this where there's a risk of surreptitious infringement. And it's not easy to detect reverse passing off. You can easily have a situation where someone would rather, a rational economic actor would rather lose the profits on a particular item if, in, if they can get their entire stream of, of, of business going forward. This is just such a case because this was their first video. They then were able to use this to get instant legitimacy in the video business and get the injury to us isn't just with regard to this product, but the injury for us is the entire future diversion of sales that they've been able to get by suddenly using 20th Century Fox's work to march into the video business and get profits time memorial. That is why Congress has enacted the kind of damages provisions it has under the Lanham Act, which I think are singularly suited for just this type of case, where it's difficult to show actual damages in any given way. I'll note, though, that the Court in our case did specifically find that we did suffer actual damages, and they did not appeal from that. The, the, the record is, is, un, un, is clear, and they're bound with it, that we lost sales and that we also lost uh, goodwill. They have not appealed from that. The Court did not quantify that in any way, but the Court then went on to award us profits and, in her discretion, to award us double profits. She was using her discretion. She could have awarded treble profits, but she chose in the, in the principles of equity to make a rational decision as befitting the facts of this case. And I, she also had the opportunity after a damages trial to see the demeanor in each and every one of the witnesses and to assess the credibility of their various statements. And I'm sure she factored that into her analysis as well. I, I, and I think that the award should be um, upheld, and we hope that the court will affirm summary judgment. I note that even though the Ninth Circuit opinion was, was short, given the fact it was a summary unpublished opinion, my understanding is that this court has de novo review and has the ability, if it so chooses, to affirm the district court's opinion on any fact uh, in the record. We think that the record amply supports the fact that there was reverse passing off here. It is a cause of action. I'm not aware of any court to ever suggest a reading of the Lanham Act that reads reverse passing off out of the Lanham Act the way that the Solicitor General and Daystar urges here. I'm not aware of a single court to ever make that suggestion. It just doesn't make sense in light of the plain language of the Lanham Act. It doesn't make sense in the light of the fact that, as this Court again is recognized in two pesos, the 88 amendments were only designed to codify existing law. They weren't entitled to, intended to make any change, and there was absolutely no suggestion anywhere in, that anyone ever thought that reverse passing off should be eliminated. It's did, an, did the uh, disclaimer or the uh, acknowledgement have to be on the package or just in the forwards uh, that's on the film? Just in the screen credits. The disclaimer, I'm sorry, Your Honor. In, if, if Daystar had done what you say they're required to do, would it have sufficed if they put the information just on the screen credits, or does it have to be on the package that the consumer buys? Well, I think it probably on the package the consumer buys, it should have said manufactured and distributed by Daystar. And if it's not on the package, then there's, the, then there's a cause of action, even if it's on the screen credits? 
uh, no, I think that if the credits, if our credits are on the inside and not on the outside, they wouldn't need to put a disclaimer probably on the, out, on the outside. In other the buyer words, doesn't, the buyer's already bought it by the, when the screen credits, you, you know, you're going to the refrigerator or reading cert petitions or something. No, no one, no one <laughs> looks at it. Well, that, well, that's why the outer packaging has to be correct. All I'm saying is that if they simply put on the outer packaging manufactured and distributed by Daystar, they wouldn't need to have a disclaimer. If on, if on the inside they were doing something different or if they want you know, Again, I'm, I'm bothered. It doesn't seem to me this is for the protection of the consumer at all. I, I understand what you're telling me about the act. Well, again, you know, as this court in Qualitex and other decisions have said, a consumer and Colgate-Palmolive has the right to know when they buy something, even if it's a capricious reason, who, you know, who they're getting it from, and they have the right to base their future purchasing decisions based on accurate information. Here, Daystar took that right from the consumer. A consumer, if they liked cr- campaigns in Europe, they uh, may that's go That's right. There's a duty to disclose the true producer, then. That's your position. No. It, it, you, you would think it could be, but it no, doesn't but have to be. If you're saying they have a right to know that, there must be a duty to disclose. No. The, only that they have the right not to know what's false. In other words, the law could well, go so far. That's a right than the one you were just describing in a moment. I appreciate that, but, but at, a, at a minimum, a consumer should not have false information. And again, as I come back to where I started, that's what this is about. These videos have been lodged with the court. I invite the court to, to look at them, and you will see how deceptive they are on the inside and on the outside, and how going back to the, my, the, the father getting the the Christmas and birthday presents that are identical, which is a very real possibility. Uh, that is not a happy situation for the consumer. Congress put in the competitor the, uh, the, uh, the, the private attorney general role to stop it. And I note, moreover, that this was very targeted act misconduct on their part. Before they released campaigns in Europe, they saw in a video catalog that Crusade in Europe in a box set was for sale. They didn't care. They targeted the competition and they continued. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Sandali. Uh, Mr. Gerber, you have five minutes remaining. I have two short points. Number one, Ms. Sandali uh, contends that there is no textual support in the uh, section of the Lanham Act at issue, 41A1A supporting uh, our and the SG's interpretation of origin and excluding the authorship concept, I would suggest that she's wrong. Uh, The textual support is the word origin. Unlike the Copyright Act, which uses the word author, the Patent Act, which uses the word inventor, the Lanham Act uses a different word, and the word is origin. And that is completely in accord with this Court's jurisprudence. I think perhaps, as Justice Souter suggested, uh, the purpose uh, uh, from a policy perspective is to render efficient purchasing decisions, as this Court stated in Qualitex. And you, you, you would stand by that for uh, forward uh, uh, causes of action yes. as, well as, uh, as well as reverse. Yes. So that if I sold a cassette that I physically manufactured, and I advertised it as being Carmen Jones, the original MGM production, and in fact it was the Capital Steps. There wouldn't be any. There wouldn't be any Lanham Act cause of action. 
I think that is forward passing off. I may That's be what I'm saying. That's forward passing off. And you would say that since origin means what you say it means, I've manufactured the piece of plastic, there's no, there's no cause oh, of action. Excuse me. Me. I mean, yes, the answer, he who says A must say B, right? The, uh, the answer under the specific myopic section we're looking at is that is correct. That would not be assertable. It would be uh, uh, redressable under arguably subsection B, and we may differ from the SG with respect to commercial advertising and promotion and whether point-of-sale labeling uh, qualifies. And under a lot of consumer protection statutes in the states, as well as the Federal Trade Act, um, the, the second point that I promised uh, responds, uh, I believe, to uh, Justice O'Connor. I wanted to add to the answer to the question, yes, this would be a copyrightable derivative work. The observation that the copyright defines proper credits for derivative works. It tells uh, owners of derivative works who may be designated as the copyright proprietor. And the law there is that the owner of a derivative work, such as Daystar, may use its name. It doesn't have to refer to the names of owners of pre-existing works. So what we have with the suggestion of respondents is a kind of dual series of credits, proper credits under the Copyright Act, and then authorial credits. Uh, I, I would suggest another example in response to Justice Scalia's question. It can become quite burdensome. You know, for a very highly complex uh, iterative product, like a car, uh, you might have 300 pages of credits in the owner's manual before you even get to how do you turn on the key under the alternative uh, universe of credits that is completely different from the derivative work credits uh, required by the Copyright Act. Unless the Court has further questions. Well, if you have a minute, would you address Ms. Sindeli's argument that there is significance when a product has intellectual content? And there is duplication, because then the confusion may very well indeed redound to the manufacturer, to the original, uh, to the originator of the product. The consumer doesn't know who to blame, so the originator of the product may well be hurt. What is your response to that argument? I'm not sure I, uh, I'm recalling the example completely. Uh, if I get it, the consumer does know who to blame. It has no, the, her, her point is you got two, you got two sets of videos out. Uh, one's got Day, Daystar on it saying, in effect, it's ours. The other one has got Crusade in Europe saying Fox. The consumer's mad because the consumer has both. The consumer doesn't know who to blame, so the consumer blames both. What's the response to that argument? I'm not sure I will uh, buy into that consequence. Uh, where both parties uh, state their names as manufacturer, the consumer could be quite happy. He could say, Daystar has cost one-fifth of what uh, boxes did and recommend it to all his friends. So while there might be uh, confusion uh, in the literal sense, it might actually be salutary. Uh, and the efficiency of that type of consumer decision is really what putting the name of the manufacturer on enables uh, the consumer to do. It renders the transactions efficient. Thank you, Mr. Gerber. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.